All right, let's uh, have prayer together, and then we're going to get started into Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Let's start with a quick prayer. Father in heaven, as we open Scripture, may you open us. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Our series is entitled Incomparable. And you will notice that the second part of the word incomparable is the word parable. And today we are going to encounter in the Gospel of Matthew a number of parables that Jesus tells. Jesus' teaching was often characterized by parables, by sort of stories, simple stories, spiritual stories that were designed to illustrate a larger meaning. We're going to talk about why Jesus spoke in parables and even today what some of the meanings of those parables were. So our series is titled Incomparable, and our presentation today, the sermon is titled, What's on the Side of Your Head? You might want to check. What's on the side of your head? So here we are in our ongoing series. We've talked about Jesus as son, check. Jesus as preacher, check. Jesus as healer, check. We've been through Jesus as leader, and we now begin this fifth chapter in the seven chapters in the Incomparable series, Jesus as teacher. And in chapters 13 to 20, we're going to see that a major emphasis of Matthew's gospel is Jesus' teacher. In fact, here's a point you might find interesting. Matthew actually arranges his gospel around five discourses, five major sermons. The Sermon on the Mount is the first. Matthew chapter 10 is the sending out of the disciples. Matthew chapter 13 that we'll be in today. Matthew chapter 18 is another major series of parables, and then Matthew chapters 23 to 25. Five large sermons, and Matthew organizes his gospel around these five sermons. You'll notice that two of those discourses, chapter 13, which we'll talk about today, and chapter 18 are in the teaching section, right? 13 and 18, and by far, the majority of those passages, as you'll see today, revolve around the content of parables. Jesus regularly and enthusiastically taught in parables. And today we're going to ask the question, why? Why did he do that? Why speak in these kind of quasi-riddle stories? Why speak in parables? And today we're going to get to the heart of that. And then later, Jesus as seer and finally as conqueror. In chapters 13 to 20, this is the teacher section, Jesus is presented as a teacher. But he often teaches in a most unexpected way, a surprising way, an unanticipated way. Now, we're going to pick up several threads because when we get here to Matthew chapter 13, we are more or less at the fulcrum point of Matthew's gospel, right? There's 28 chapters in the gospel of Matthew, and so we're coming now here to the real guts, the real content guts of the point that Matthew is trying to make in his gospel and that Jesus is trying to make in his ministry, We've been introduced to who Jesus is. Jesus is the son. Jesus is a preacher. Jesus is a healer. Jesus is a leader. Okay, what did he have to say? What was it that Jesus said? Now, certainly up to this point, he's already said a great many things. The Sermon on the Mount was the longest discourse in the New Testament. But as we come into this teacher section, we're going to be introduced to Jesus as educator. He had something to say, and not only what he said, but the way that he said it will be instructive for us over the next several Sabbaths. And so we want to pick up several of those threads so that we can orient ourselves as to where we are in the shape of Matthew's gospel now that we're in chapter 13. Well, right at the end of Matthew chapter 12, join me there if you would, right at the end of Matthew chapter 12, or toward the end, I should say, it's actually right toward the middle, verse 29, we find Jesus saying these words. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In many ways, this single verse and this single idea is the larger portrait of the whole of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come to bind a strong man, to tie him up and then to plunder his house. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 12 and 13, that's what Jesus has been doing. He has bound the strong man. Now, just a question, church. Who do you think, in context, the strong man might be? It's Satan. Yeah, you might remember that just before this, just before Jesus says that 
you couldn't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bound him. Jesus was accused of being in league with Satan. Oh, he performs his miracles by being in league with Satan. He performs them by magical dark powers. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, how could it stand? If I cast out demons by Satan, how could that kingdom be standing? I'm actually doing violence. I'm doing hostility to this kingdom of darkness. And so he says, look, if there's a guy over there and he's guarding his house and he's a strong man, you couldn't go plunder his house. You couldn't plunder his goods and possessions unless you first bound him. Well, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already bound Satan. Did you hear what I said? In the Gospel of Matthew, Satan is already bound. What would give me permission to say that textually? Does anybody have an idea? How could I say that? Where would we find in the Gospel of Matthew the binding of Satan and his power? Anybody have a guess? Okay, that's true. The casting out of demons. All the way back to Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus went into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted, and he was tempted with Satan's main arrows, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in each case, Jesus effectively catches the arrow and then breaks it. Satan has no power over Jesus. He has been emasculated. He has been disarmed. He has been bound. He's bound. He's defeated. He does not have power. He doesn't have traction in the life of Jesus. And so what we see is Jesus then takes that power and he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, hey, you guys go. Go from town to town. Go from hamlet to hamlet and village to village and heal and cast out demons and restore because he's bound now. Jesus uses this fascinating illustration that you, you couldn't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bound him. And in the context and shape of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is saying, hey, look, the reason the disciples can do the stuff they're doing is Satan was bound back in chapter 4. He has no power over Jesus. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and selfishness has no traction with Messiah. That's thread number one. The strong man is bound. Thread number two, and we've talked about this, is that many are pressing around Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. Many are pressing upon him. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. This was for both acoustic and practical purposes, right? You would know, perhaps, that sound transmits really well across water. And, and the crowds were so pressing that if you have a crowd of several hundred or even perhaps several thousand pressing upon Jesus, if he speaks, even if he yells, it would be difficult to carry beyond those that were immediately around him. And so he gets this idea, and it was acoustically brilliant. He says, look, push me out in the boat. I'll be here. Then we'll have this sort of speaker, this amphitheater of water that will carry my voice to the whole mass. Lots of people are following Jesus around. They think he's cool. They think he's approachable. They think he's available. They like that. But as we're going to see today, even though there are lots of people in the vicinity of Jesus, comparatively few are hearing Jesus. Number three, the ongoing use of fulfill. We've mentioned before that this is probably Matthew's favorite word. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. Matthew has put on, as all the New Testament writers have, a new pair of glasses. And they are going back and reading their own stories, their own history, their own books. They're reading from Genesis right through the law. They're reading through the Psalms and right through the prophetic books. And they're reading through those books with new glasses. And these new glasses are a radical Christocentric way of seeing their own history, their own story, and their own books. And when they do that, they're like, whoa, that was fulfilled in Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. Today, in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew quotes twice from the book of Isaiah and says, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. Number four of five. We've seen this before where there is an allusion to the fact when Jesus said, for example, with John the Baptist, 
all of the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. But now everyone that comes after John, even the least in the kingdom of heaven, has it better off than the prophets. Because the prophets were always looking forward. There was an expectation. There was an anticipation. There was a hope. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And when Jesus comes, he's not coming. He's come. He's here. And so notice Matthew chapter 13, in that very context, what Jesus himself says. Right in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, listen to this, assuredly I say to you that many prophets... And many righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And they desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Again, the audacity of this provocative young rabbi is bordering on the absurd unless what he's saying is true. All the prophets, all the righteous men, all the authors of the Old Testament, they wanted to hear something. They wanted to see something. And you're seeing it. You're hearing it. Quite an audacious and peerless claim. Unless, of course, it was true. What if it was true? And then we'll see today in the parables that Jesus' word is determinative. We've already seen this back in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, Hey, look, if you hear my word and you do it, you're like a guy that built his house on the rock. But if you just hear my word and don't do it, you're like a guy who built his house on the sand. Something about the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, something about that becomes, check this out, this is big, this is big, determinative in the shaping of one's eternal destiny. Who says that kind of thing? Who says that? Who says that the words that I am speaking to you will shape in a permanent fashion, will fix in a permanent fashion, your eternal destiny. Who says that? Jesus did. Okay. A little bit more about the shape of chapter 13. Fascinatingly, chapter 13 is surrounded by conflict and rejection. In Matthew chapter 12, there's conflict with the religious leaders and the Pharisees reject him. They reject him. They say, oh, this guy's demons. He casts out demons by the demonic power of Beelzebub himself. So there's rejection and conflict. When we come to the end of Matthew chapter 13, there's rejection and conflict not by Pharisees, but by Jesus' own people from his hometown of Nazareth. So so when Matthew introduces chapter 13 with the major parables, some of the major parables of Jesus' ministry, he wants you to know that Jesus was regularly rejected and treated with hostility. He wasn't going as a hero from town to town and everybody's receiving him and everything is grand. The Pharisees and many of the first century Jewish sympathizers thought that Jesus was either troublesome at the most mild or dangerous at the worst. Number two, Jesus' family comes up at the end of Matthew chapter 12. The the brothers and mother of Jesus are outside and somebody's like, hey, Jesus, you're... Your mom's outside and your sisters, your brothers and sisters are outside. They want to talk to you. When we come to the end of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to his hometown and begins to preach. And the people are like, hey, we know this guy. We know who this guy is. I know his sister. I went to school with his sister. This guy can't be all that great. So Jesus' family shows up in a really interesting way in Matthew chapter 13, this area. And then finally, at the end of Matthew chapter 12, you might remember the Pharisees are like, okay, show us a sign. Show us a sign and we'll believe you. And Jesus is like, I'm not, I'm not a magician, mate. I'm not performing. I'm not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. There will be a sign. And the sign will be the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm not here to perform magic tricks to keep you happy. And at the end of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and Scripture says he could not do any signs because the people didn't believe. So here's Jesus kind of in this whirlwind, this vortex, conflict, there's family pressures, there's this clamoring for a sign, and all the while, Jesus is not 
he's not a very good Messiah. Not by first century standards and expectations. He's not acting like a Messiah. He's not carrying himself like a Messiah. He's not speaking like a Messiah. Like he's, he's not a very good Messiah, this guy. In fact, what we encounter in Matthew chapter 13 is this riddle-telling preacher. So let's talk about some of those riddles, shall we? A theme in each of these seven parables, and we're not going to go through all of them in any detail. That's not the purpose of today's presentation. It's to set them in their larger context within the Gospel of Matthew. But in each of these parables, and let's just look at what the parables are. So if you've got Matthew chapter 13 in front of you, the first is the parable of the sower. Okay, that goes down all the way to about verse 24. Then we have the parable of the wheat and the tares, which goes down to verse 30. Then we have the parable of the mustard seed, followed by the parable of the yeast or the leaven. And then the last two are the parable, or excuse me, the last three are the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and then finally the parable of the dragnet. Seven parables. And as I studied through and read through these parables, I didn't get this from a commentary. I didn't get this from some program I watched. In fact, this is going to become a major point of emphasis today. I did something that is really old-fashioned. I read the Bible. It's crazy, I know. I read it, and I read it over and over again. And then I kept reading it, and I kept looking at it, and I kept reading it, and I kept looking at it. And I kept thinking, what's going on? What is the theme? What's the point? Is there any binding agent or any commonality or thread that binds these parables together. And you know what? The Lord Jesus said, there is something, David. Here it is. And I didn't read it in a commentary. I didn't read it in a book. And I didn't watch it on a sermon. God showed it to me. And I'm going to show it to you. And maybe you, in your study, because next week's going to be 14. This is really easy to understand. Then the next week will be 15. Then 16. You see the pattern? Then 17. Maybe you, in your weekly study, could come up with something in 17 or 18, and you could even send me a text, or you could send David a text, or Jared a text, or an email, and say, hey, look, I was studying, I came up with this, and maybe it would be something, hey, oh, the theme in each of these seven parables is hiddenness and obscurity, mingled with waiting and patience. A commonality in each of these parables is there's something hidden there's something obscure that requires patience, requires us to wait. So let's go, let's go through them and see what we can come up with here in very uh, quick succession. First of all, two quotations from, from really great commentaries. The first is from N.T. Wright in his commentary, Matthew for Everyone, and this is what he says, sort of setting the historical context here. He says, it's important to notice how surprising all this would be, a riddle-telling preacher. It's important to notice how surprising all this would be to the disciples themselves, never mind to anyone else. They expected, like many Jews of the time, that when Jesus, or when God, finally acted to bring the kingdom to birth, this would happen in a blaze of glory, in a movement that would sweep through Israel, bringing freedom, justice, and peace wherever it went continuing until the whole world had come under God's righteous rule. That's how they envisioned it. The suggestion that instead, the kingdom might come, as it were, by stealth. Not only through the puzzling words of a riddling preacher, but through the mixed responses of his hearers, this must have seemed very strange. That's what I mean when I say Jesus wasn't a very good Messiah by first century expectations. He's not doing the right things. He's not saying the right things. He's not endearing himself to the right people. He's sitting in a boat telling riddles, not the portrait that most had of a first century Messiah. In fact, not the portrait that any had. And then from a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Craig Keener. These parables most clearly declare that God's kingdom had arrived in some sense in Jesus' ministry in a hidden and anticipatory way. Far from baptizing the wicked in fire and overthrowing nations at his first coming... Jesus had come as a meek servant, wandering around Galilee with a group of obscure disciples healing some sick people. The Romans took no notice of him until angry Jewish aristocrats brought him to their attention. And even this did not happen until Jesus attacked the temple system. In a world with governments in turmoil and full of wandering teachers and magicians, Jesus' initial arrival as a meek and politically inconspicuous servant 
rendered his mission as opaque as his parables, except to the disciples bearing the insight of faith. And then this single sentence. Only those who press into Jesus' circle truly understood his identity. Jesus has already said this back in Matthew chapter 12. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And we were like, what does that mean? People were pressing upon Jesus. There was an accessibility. There was an availability now of the kingdom. Jesus was not an aloof religious teacher that was holier than thou and came off as, you know, righteous. Jesus is available. He's accessible. He's, he's sitting in the home of tax collectors. He's touching lepers. He's speaking positively about Gentiles. There's an availability and approachability about Jesus that people press upon him, press upon him. And I love this point that Keener makes. Lots of people are hearing, but only those that press into his inner circle get it. The same is true today, my friends. Lots of people are hearing, but only those who press into the presence of Jesus get it. So let's look at this. Let's see if that's what emerges. The first parable, parable of the sower. Let's read this. Verse 3, then he spoke many things to them in parables and said, Behold, a sower went out to sow, scatter his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them, and some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded some crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. That's why the sermon is titled, What's on the Side of Your Head? Just check mine. Might want to check yours. I have ears. Jesus says, he who has ears, that is, as near as I can discern on a quick look, all of us in this room. Now, some of you ladies have hid your ears with your hair, but I, I presume they're still there. He that has ears, let him hear. Well, the disciples are like, what? Verse 10, the disciples came to him and like, why are you doing this? Why can't we just go chop the heads off the Romans? Why, why are you talking in riddles? You can sense the frustration of the disciples. This is not the expectation. The disciples come to Jesus and they're like, why are you speaking in parables? They are genuinely confused. Why talk like this? This is not, what we're, this is not a very good rallying cry. This is not a very good battle cry. This is not what, what our expectation is. Why are you speaking in parables? And then Jesus says something that they certainly were not expecting. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Now, who is the them? Well, if you notice back on verse, in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, on the same day. So this is an uninterrupted narrative from those conflicts he was having with the Pharisees. The Pharisees could very well have been standing right there. Like they could have been right there at that moment, and when the disciples come up and are like, hey, why are you talking in parables? Why don't you talk in a language that we can understand? Jesus could have said, I'll tell you why, because it is given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but it is not given to them. Verse 12, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and, to him, uh, and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing they do not hear, and shall not understand, and seeing they do not see, and will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, so that I should Heal them. And then the verses that we've already read. Lots of prophets and righteous people wanted to see what you see and didn't. But you do. Jesus, why are you talking in these enigmatic riddles? He's like, well, because it's given to you to understand what's happening. You're pressing. You're drawing near. But to them, the accusers, 
the distant, the fault finders, the self-righteous, the self-satisfied, and the self-sufficient, they hear my words, but it's not given to them to hear with understanding. Jesus here quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And when you go back and read in Isaiah chapter 6, fascinatingly, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 6 speaks of a seed, a holy seed. That holy seed is none other than Jesus. It's anticipated in Isaiah 6, but you will notice that of these seven parables in Matthew 13, seven parables, the first three have to do with seeds. A sower sowed seed. The next parable is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Did you not sow good seed in your field? And the third one says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Right out of the gate, Jesus is like quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, if you go back and read it, it says, Israel is like a tree that's been cut down. It's useless. It's a tree that's been cut down. It's a stump. But then Isaiah looks, and in that stump, he sees beginning to grow a holy seed. And then three times, very likely the religious leaders of his day who would have been familiar with Isaiah 6 would have picked this up. Oh, he's saying that his words and his kingdom and his identity is the holy seed of Isaiah 6. Now, in this parable, Jesus explains it. Verse 18, and there's a number of things we could bring out about the parable. I'm going to bring out probably one point, maybe two. It's fascinating. Verse 18, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Okay? You don't like me speaking in enigmatic riddles and parables? I'll explain what I'm talking about. Listen to the explanation. Jesus did not usually give explanations of his parables, but here he breaks, he breaks his normal pattern in Matthew, and he actually tells them what it means. Here's what it means. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what he has sown in his heart. This he said of those who receive the seed on the wayside. Verse 20. But he who received the seed in stony places is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Hallelujah, this is good news. Verse 21, yet he has no root in himself and he endures for a little while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Verse 22, now he who received the, the, the seed among thorns is he who hears the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So notice the wayside, the stony place and those among thorns. Then verse 23, but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundred, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. Okay, so here's the major takeaway point. It's obvious. It's so obvious. You might miss it. They say the best place to hide something's in plain sight. Everybody hears. Jesus says, the wayside hears, the stony place hears, the thorns, those among thorns hears, and the good ground hears. Everybody hears. The most common word of significance in all of Matthew chapter 13 is hear. They're all hearing. What's going on with this sower? Well, first of all, you might say this guy's wasteful. He's prodigal because he sows his seed widely and indiscriminately. A first century farmer listening to Jesus' parable might have thought, well, this is not a very careful farmer. He's not very careful with his seed. He's just like chucking it everywhere. It's like throwing it there and throwing it there. But I love this because Jesus is saying, man, I'm here. I'm going to spread this seed wherever to whoever, however I can. I'm going to throw it everywhere. Even the places that look promising, the places that don't look promising. I'm going to throw my seed to Gentiles. I'm going to throw my seed to religious leaders. I'm going to cast my seed upon the profligate. I'm going to cast my seed upon the, 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 the religious outsiders. I'm going to cast my seed on tax collectors. I'm even going to cast my seed upon some Jews. I'm just going to, I love this idea. It's the, it's the prodigal nature of God. He's just spreading it everywhere, hoping that some will fall in the right place. 
God is not the determiner of where the seed lands. As Jesus unfolds the parable, the, par- the determiner of the response, of, of the, the, the determiner of the, the way that the seed takes root in the, in the soil is not only hearing, but hearing with understanding. In other words, it's up to you and to me what kind of soil the seed falls upon. But Jesus' overriding point cannot be missed. Everybody hears. Everybody hears. But only those on good ground hear with understanding and then bear fruit. So the sower sows his seed widely and indiscriminately. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. Can the church say amen? This is why we are urging, imploring, begging, cajoling, just about everything short of manipulating, you to invite people to come and hear about Jesus. That's a pretty good idea for a church, don't you think? Maybe we should be here creating opportunities for people to hear about Jesus. What do you think? It's crazy. It's wild. It's radical. Let's tell somebody about Jesus. Bam. Better parenting, better marriage, better mind, better health. Okay? The good news of Jesus is for everyone. Everyone hears in this parable, but only one understands and acts appropriately. Okay? Notice the next one. The next uh, parable here. Excellent. The parable of the wheat and the tares. And I'm actually not going to read through all of this because many of you would have heard this before, the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is the second of the seven parables. I'll just quickly review it. A guy sows good seed in his field. The next day, weeds come up. The laborers are confused about the presence of weeds. And they're like, hey, we thought we sowed good seed in the field Where'd the weeds come from? And then he gives this simple response. An enemy has done this. No responsibility for the presence of the weeds. This was not uncommon, by the way, in the ancient in, 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 in the time of Jesus, in the ancient world, to sow, purposefully sow weeds in somebody else's if you had a, a, a feud with them or if you had host, hostility toward them, you could sow weeds into their crops. So Jesus is like, I didn't do that. That was sown by somebody else. An enemy has done this. Now go to verse 31. Jesus here tells the parable of the mustard seed. Well, actually, before we do that, let's look at what we've got up here. Jesus didn't employ his many parables for intellectual reasons, but moral ones. I tweeted this this week. That's why I put the little tweet symbol up there for you. Jesus is not telling parables in order to stretch the intellectual faculties of his hearers. He's not like, hey, do you want to hear a joke? Hey, do you want to hear a riddle? See if you can figure this out. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is telling parables for moral reasons. Because in order to sort of get to the heart of the parable, in order to get to the heart of the riddle that's being told, you have to think about it. And in thinking about it, you'll probably be alone, and you'll be sitting there with your own thoughts and your own situation and your own experience. He is trying to arouse a moral response from those that are hearing the parable. He's not just telling funny stories or interesting stories. He wants to elicit a moral response. Second tweet. Jesus' teachings are not so much intellectually complicated as they are morally challenging. This is not hard to understand. When Jesus tells us what it means... The first guy is the one that he hears the word and the enemy comes and snatches it away. That's not hard to understand. This has happened to every one of you. It's happened to me. I've heard some great idea. I've heard some great sermon. I've read some great book. I've seen something in scripture. And then all of a sudden it's snatched away from me by some modern distraction. It's gone. Happens. That's not hard to understand. The second one is the one that receives it with joy. They're really passionate about the word. This is so great. This is so awesome. This is so amazing. But as soon as a little tribulation... A a strange look, a little bit of persecution comes, a little bit of you being on the outside of the in crowd, and all of a sudden you're like, uh, you downplay your religious experience. Every one of us in this room has done that. No point in pretending. Every one of us in this room has been tempted and has given into the temptation to hide our religion in various contexts and in various circumstances because we feared what people would think about us or what they would say about us or to us. This is not rocket science to figure out. And the last one, he says, the one among thorns are people who who love the word, but man, they love money more. And they love stuff more. And they love shiny widgets and gadgets more. 
That would be many of us in this room. I can illustrate that, by the way, and I, I told this to the kids, uh, the, the, the young people in the Sabbath school. I said, you spent hours looking at your phone this week. It's a guarantee. Or your iPod or your iPad. You spent hours looking at this. How much time did you spend looking at this? You might love this, but this chokes it away. And I have a little piece of advice I give it to the young people. I'll give it to you as well. Do not read your Bible on a phone. It's a bad idea for a few reasons. First of all, studies have consistently shown that it is not possible to maintain the same level of, of intellectual depth looking at a phone because, first of all, the medium itself does not lend itself. It, it's, it's a light. It's a shining light. But to make matters worse, oh, look, I got a text. Oh, look, there's an Instagram photo. Oh, somebody sent me an email. Oh, you cannot maintain the level of depth of thinking and of attention that you need in order to understand Scripture by looking at a phone. So my advice to you do not read scripture on your phone. Get one of these. I know it's old-fashioned. It's kind of crazy. It's a little wild. Paper. Paper. And read it. Paper. This happens to us. So, so when Jesus tells these parables, he's not trying to bend. Whoa, Jesus is so smart, dude. He blew my mind. That's not what he's doing. What Jesus is saying is, are you among thorns? Are you on stony ground? Are you by the wayside? He is trying to elicit a moral challenge to you, not just to titillate your intellectual sensibilities. That's why he's speaking in parables. In God's system of education, understanding follows obedience more than the reverse. Let me explain that. We have sometimes tricked ourselves into thinking, well, when I understand that better, I'll do it. Man, we've done this. Well, let me study that out, and then maybe I'll do it. I had some people saying to me, hey, that sermon he preached last Sabbath, I'd never heard that before. I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. I never heard that before. I say, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry that you managed to be a Seventh-day Adventist and attend Seventh-day Adventist schools and churches, and nobody taught you that you keep Sabbath by resting and giving rest. I'm, I'm sorry that that happened, but I want to tell you something. A really cool thing happens. Check this out. When you obey God, watch this understanding follows. When you do the right thing, you become smarter. You become wiser. Understanding follows obedience. But many of us, we want to stand over here and say, well, I would need that explained to more satisfaction before I'd commit. God's like, no, 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 no. You commit. You make the moral jump. You make the moral step and the intellectual will follow. People are not unconvinced about Jesus. They are, un, they are unpersuaded about the moral claims that Jesus makes on our life. People aren't like, well, I don't know. I need to learn more about Jesus. I need to learn more about the Gospels. I need to, it's not a, you and I do not lack the intellectual faculties to grasp what Jesus is saying. Jesus is like, listen to what I say and do it. I'm having trouble understanding that, Jesus. I need to get my Ph.D. in systematic theology. No, you don't. I don't have a Ph.D. in systematic theology. And you don't need one either. All you need is a paper Bible and eyes and ears. The wheat and the tares teach, at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares, this is the major takeaway, the major moral takeaway, that there will be a final accounting before God. When the tares and the wheat come up, the, disciple, the, 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 the workers are like, hey, do you want us to go and gather up the weeds? And Jesus is like, no, don't gather up the weeds because if you gather up the weeds, you might also gather up some of the tares. Don't do that. Jesus is like, at the time of the harvest, God will be able to distinguish between the wheat and the tares. The parable teaches, among other things, that there will be a final accounting before God. And I don't know about you, but I regard this as supremely good news. If you're sitting there, and I hope you're not, thinking, <gasps> Judgment, final accounting before God. You got the wrong glasses on, man. This is a world that cries out for judgment. This is a world where oppression is the norm, where sin is the norm, where evil is the norm. This is a world 
crying out to be judged by a righteous and fair God. And we, just as in Old Testament times and New Testament times, should not be like, oh, judgment, I'm afraid. We should be like, Lord, please judge the earth and judge me. We want God to come and start making right decisions. And the parable of the wheat and tares says he's going to do that. And sure, it's a little scary because God knows your internet history and God knows how you spend your money and God knows what you do with your thoughts and God knows how you speak and God knows how you spend your intellectual energies. That's a little scary. But not really. You give your life to Jesus, man. The gospel is true. God forgives. God invites. God woos. God saves. Can somebody say amen to that? If you believe the gospel, you have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to the judgment, unless you're a hypocrite, a total, unrepentant, living a double life hypocrite. And I don't think there's many or hopefully none of those in this church. The judgment is not something to be fearful of. It's especially in this day and age, Lord have mercy. It is something that we should be longing for God to bring an end to sin, to evil, to injustice, to oppression. The parable of the wheat and tares also teach that things are not always as straightforward as they first appear. And that is true. Hey, do you want us to go and gather those up? No, 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 no. You'll get it wrong. There are people in this room that I have misjudged. There are people in this room that you have misjudged. I actually do this little intellectual exercise with myself. When I meet somebody for the first time, I make a mental note of my first impression of them. Because I have found that I am usually dead wrong. Right? Things are not always what they appear to be. And I tweeted this just this last week, and it was hugely popular. Check this out. Everything and everybody has a context. You are in no capacity to judge somebody else exhaustively. We can analyze, we can evaluate, we can make critical thinking decisions, but everybody, the drug addict, the abused and the abuser, the gossiper, everybody and everything has a context, the details of which are known fully only by God. In light of that, my advice to you is be merciful and hopeful. Assume the best. You might be ready to pluck up a piece of... You might be ready to pluck up a weed out of the church. Could be wheat. Conversely, there could be a big... What looks to be a big, beautiful, beginning to grow, lovely piece of wheat that could not turn... Jesus is like, I'll sort that out. Let me sort that out. Let them both grow together. That's not your business. You let me, you let me sort that out. Let them both grow together until the harvest and I'll sort it out. Jesus then tells this must, parable of a mustard seed. He's like, look, there's this tiny little mustard seed and you plant it and then it becomes huge and birds nest in it. The mustard seed teaches that the obscure grows into a glorious place of safety and rest. Jesus is obscure. He's a riddle-telling preacher wandering the wilds of the Galilean hillsides and he's like, look, I don't look like much right now, but one day the things that I'm talking about and the kingdom that I'm advocating will grow and millions and billions will take rest in the things that I'm saying and especially in the things that I'm doing. Jesus then tells this parable of the yeast. I want you to read this one. Verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them and said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. That's it. Just a simple little parable. The leaven teaches that God's kingdom invades the world in a hidden but thorough way. Just as the woman would tuck the, 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 the yeast or the leaven into the bread and then knead it and roll it and knead it and roll it, and you have to wait. Over time, that which is hidden permeates the whole. Notice how many things are hidden. The seeds were hidden in the ground, and the tares and the wheat were hidden, which is which, and the, the mustard seed, its true potential was hidden by its small size, obscured by its small side, size, and here the leaven is hidden in the loaf. Things are hidden, and notice that everything takes time. 
It took time for the seeds. Is it on the, is it on the wayside? Is it on the, in the thorny ground? Is it in the good ground? It, it takes time for that to grow. And it takes time to see if it's a weed or a wheat. And it takes time for the, the, uh, the, the, the mustard seed to grow into a great tree. And it takes time and patience for the leaven to leaven the lump. You can't just throw the leaven in and wait. You have to wait. Jesus is saying, look, I don't look very impressive now, and I know that. But wait. This will become something awesome. This will grow. If you will hear, and not just hear in terms of auditory noise, but if you will hear with understanding, and you will press into my presence, this little seed, this holy seed will be planted in your heart, and it will grow, and it will permeate, and it will become something awesome. Jesus then explains the parable of the tares, which we won't go into right now. Then he tells the final three parables. The first is in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Maybe the best sermon I've ever preached in my life is on these next three parables. It's called, What Wondrous Love Is This? You can Google it if you want. What Wondrous Love Is This? tackles these three parables, and I'm not going to recapitulate that here. Okay? But go check it out. It's a new way of viewing the, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. The hidden treasure teaches that joy and action follow a transforming discovery. When you find that treasure, there's joy and there's action. Not just hearing, but hearing. The crowds were hearing, but only some were hearing. The hidden treasure teaches that joy and action follow a transforming discovery. The pearl of great price, let's read that, the pearl of great price, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. This pearl was hidden. It was hidden in two ways. First of all, any pearl is hidden inside of the oyster, so it's hidden initially, and then it's hidden in some merchant man's stand somewhere, and it has to be found. It takes time. It takes patience. It's hidden. The pearl teaches that the search is worth it and that the pearl itself is worth everything. And then Jesus closes by telling the parable of the dragnet. There were both clean and unclean fishes in the various freshwaters around uh, Galilee, especially the Sea of Galilee. And when a net would be drugged through the bottom, you'd pull up things that were edible and inedible. You'd pull up just stuff. Like the wheat and the tares, the dragnet teaches that there will be a final accounting. So I want to close by asking this question. What are those things on the side of your head? They're ears. And Jesus says, if you have ears, hear. Not just a casual acquaintance with Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, me and him, we're cool. We're cool. Yeah, Jesus. Do you read his word? Do you minister? Do you tell people about Jesus? That guy you're cool with? Oh, yeah, I'm cool. Do you pray? And I don't mean like, God in heaven, thank you for this day. Amen. I mean, pray? What are those things on your head? Jesus was actually being a little cheeky here because he knows that everybody that he's talking to has ears. But he says, hear. Hear. There's an irony in me explaining to you what the parables are about. Jesus understood there was an irony in him explaining to the disciples what the parables were about, which is why he didn't usually do that. He said, this is not just an intellectual challenge. This is for you. Go think about this. Go look in the mirror and ask yourself about the leaven. Go ask yourself about the mustard seed. Go ask yourself about the thorny ground. This is not designed to tip, tickle our intellectual faculties. It's designed to get us to move morally and spiritually where God is trying to get us. Not just to be in the crowd that surrounds Jesus, but in the inner circle of people that are pressing into the presence of Jesus. What are those things on the side of your head? There's like three or four slides left and you're done. I want to say this to you, church. You don't have time to not pray and study and do. You don't have time to not study. 
your Bible, your Bible. And if you don't know how to study your Bible, come and talk to me and I'll show you. It's really simple. I'll teach you how to study your Bible. That's an open invitation. It's a fairly good invitation, I'd say. We run growth groups, and I've had dozens and dozens of people come to our growth groups, and we have a great time there. But maybe that doesn't suit your schedule. You want to schedule an hour with me? I'll be away for the next few weeks in the U.S., but if you want to schedule an hour with me when I come back, I'd be happy to sit down with an hour or two and teach you how I study the Bible. I'd love to. It'd be an honor to do that. So if, if I'm saying to you, you don't have time not to study, and you're sitting there and legitimately saying, I don't know how to study, I will try to show you what I do, and I think it'll be a real blessing to you. That's an open invitation for anybody in this room. And if we get enough people to do it, we'll just do it on Sabbath morning. Or we'll do it on Friday evening. I don't care. I, don't, I make myself available for that. But you don't have time to not study. And you don't have time to not pray. And neither do I. And you don't have time to not do the things that Jesus asks us to do. Jesus is not just a cool guy to have as an acquaintance. He is Messiah. He is Lord. And he is Savior. This is how Keener said it in his, in his commentary. Only those who press into Jesus' circle truly understand his identity. There's going to be a lot of people that are affiliated with Jesus. But there's going to be some who are intimately connected to Jesus. And there is a giant difference. Everybody's hearing. But only some are hearing. And my prayer is that every person in this church would be hearing, and not just on Sabbath morning, and not just in Sabbath school, and not just in growth groups, and not just in the better series, but in your own closet, in your own room, with your own Bible, on your own knees. In fact, I went over and did a devotional this week, close on this, went over and did a devotional this week at TVAC. They just finished an amazing week of prayer that Boris uh, uh, Jovanoff did, and by all accounts, it went outstanding. And Pastor Marty Bernard said to me, Chaplain Marty Bernard said to me, hey, look, it'd be great if you could give the kids something to, where do they go from here? Okay, they've had this great spiritual high. It's been an awesome experience. They have had more decisions, more responses over at Tweed Valley Adventist College to Boris's preaching and to the spirit working through Boris than they have in a long time. And they were just thrilled about all these decisions. It's like 60% of the students made decisions for Jesus. Can somebody say amen to that? That's just awesome. So Marty was like, hey, look, why don't you come and tell us where do we go from here? Lots of people have made decisions. Lots of people have either responded to Jesus for the first time or they've recommitted their lives. Where do we go from here? And so I came up with an acronym one day when I was out riding my bike. And I'm going to share it with you. Growth. This is how you grow. This is how you hear. This is how you do. Number one, you want to grow? You've got to get on your knees. Your knees. You spend very little time on your knees. Most of your life is spent either in this position, this position, or this position. That's your life in three positions. So it's rare that you're on your knees. Now, some people might be here. You have somebody that does silicon or tiling or something. You know, Greg might spend more time on his knees than the rest of us. He's a little more holy. But for most of us, you're on your knees for the most part, unless your vocation requires it, when you're praying. Prayer is not posture, but posture creates an attitude. It alerts us to the fact, man, God is big and I'm humbling myself before him. So you want to grow? You want to hear? Get on your knees. And maybe you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. If you don't have time in the morning to pray, what you do is you take your shoes, your shoe that you were going to use the next day, whatever shoes you were going to wear the next day. So it's Monday morning, you got to wear your shoes. What you do is you take your shoe and you toss it under your bed. So the next morning you're going to get up, you're going to be eating your cereal, you're going to be like, oh man, I gotta get, where are my shoes? And you're going to remember, oh, they're under the bed. Well, you're going to have to get down on your knees to get that shoe out, and while you're down there, just pray. <laughs> you're already down there. They say that you know you're getting old when you bend over. You think, is there anything else I can get while I'm down here? Okay, so throw the shoe under the bed, and there you go. You're praying. So number one, get on your knees. Number two, read your own Bible. Not your phone. Read your Bible, your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come and talk to me. We get you a Bible for free. 
Read your own Bible, your paper Bible. Read it. You can read anything. My advice to you would be to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the Psalms. Start there. And here's what you do. Real simple. This is basically what I do. I open it up to whatever I've been reading through, and I go like this. True story. God in heaven, my Father, show me something about you and about myself. In Jesus' name, amen. Then I just read. Five minutes, seven minutes, six minutes, ten minutes, whatever you got. God, show me something about myself and about you. Amen. Start reading. Read your Bible. You want to grow? Read your Bible. Number three, offer yourself to God. Offer yourself. Offer yourself in service. Offer yourself to be a helper at the better meetings. Offer your money. Give that $2,500 or $25. If you can't put the two zeros behind it, then just put the $25 offering in the bucket. Or if you can add another zero, make it to $25,000. Offer yourself to God in service, in ministry, in worship. I was actually really impressed, and Mel had to leave a little early this morning. You guys sang really great this morning. You outdid yourselves. You did really, really well. I was impressed. Sometimes, though, the singing is like... And I've had people in this church say to me, I don't really like singing. It's like, okay, well, you don't have to like it. But, you know, this really crazy thing happens. When you sing with enthusiasm, you actually start to like it. Try this. Just pretend like you like it. Just fake the rest of us out. And a really cool thing might start to happen in your heart. You know, when you start singing, you know, amazing. You start singing. Oh, you get into it. And you, before you know it, you might be like, wow, I, I quite enjoyed that. Rather than, oh, music, not enough hymns, too many hymns, not loud enough, too loud, not enough drums, more drums, not enough Hillsong, too much Hillsong, not enough Bethel, too much Bethel. <laughs> You come like a consumer. You're not consumers, friends. You're worshipers. We come to worship. Just sing to Jesus and just take your passionate preferences and prerogatives, put them on hold for 15 minutes on Sabbath morning, suck it up, and sing a song to the glory of God. Worship. And then finally, thankful. Just be thankful. If you have more than three pairs of shoes in your closet, you are statistically in the wealthiest 10% of this world's population. If you own a car, you are in the wealthiest 5% of this world's population. If you own two cars, you're like a millionaire. If you own a house, like own your house, oh, man, you're, you're elite. You are, the, you are the financial elite of the world. Just this last week, I flew to New Zealand for 48 hours actually 36 hours to visit a dear friend of mine who's 48 years old, who has, who has cancer and who has two young children, my, my children's age, and is, weighs about 45 kilograms and will die very soon, barring a miracle. I have walked hundreds of kilometers with this man all over the South Island of New Zealand. He is one of the strongest, most robust, beautiful people I've ever had the privilege of knowing. And he will be dead in very short order, barring a miracle. Let me tell you something. If you can touch your toes, if you can put one foot in front of another, if you can lift your hands, if you can drive a car, you have so much to be thankful for. Just be thankful. Get on your knees, read your Bible, offer yourself, worship your God, and be thankful. And you will not only hear, you will hear. Father in heaven, we don't want to just hear like those that were affiliated, those that were on the outside, those that were around Jesus. Father, we want to hear. We have ears. They're on the sides of our head. We want to hear in this cacophonous, materialistic, sensual world that is drawing us away with its flashing lights and its exciting shows and its great, exciting new movies. Father, we want to hear, hear about what really matters 
the most. I pray, Father, that the mustard seed and the leaven and the pearl and the treasure and the seed, though they be small and hidden, that they would lodge in our hearts, that they would lodge in our lives, that they would lodge in our families, that they would lodge in our checkbooks, that they would lodge in our phones, that they would lodge in our computers, that they would lodge in our attitudes, that they would lodge in our workplaces, that these things would lodge in our lives and would begin to grow. And silently, mysteriously invade our whole life. Father, we don't want to be satisfied to be mere hearers. We want to be hearers, to hear, to understand, to respond. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone with ears say amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.